Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you, you wear your emotions on your sleeve quite a bit, so are you able to block out when you hear the noise from the fans? Um, I don't want to block them out. I don't want to block them out. Um, they're expressing their frustration, and I hear them. I hear them. I'm right there with them. Um, I just got to get better. the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, June the 4th, 2023, of course. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can show it up the podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. You can also get me on Instagram, talkingmetsnog. And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network as well as risingapple.com. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. A lot to talk about today. Of course, it's Hall of Fame weekend. Beautiful ceremony. Al Leiter, Howard Johnson, Jay Horwitz, Howie Rose, Gary Cohen. A lot to talk about there. Who do we bring in when we want to talk about Mets history? None other than our good friend Greg Prince from Faith and Fear and Flushing. He'll be joining me. It just seems like yesterday that he was on the program with me and we were talking about Willie Mays and Old Timers Day and all the other fun stuff. So who do we go to? We go to our grand historian, and Greg Prince will be joining me in just a little bit. Mets get swept against the Blue Jays after a very promising start to the week. We'll talk about that. Everybody complains about the Mets lineup, but does it really matter? We'll talk about that. I'll give you my thoughts about who might be next in the Mets Hall of Fame. Max Scherzer had a lot to say about the pitch clock. We saw a few pitch clock violations this weekend. I'll give you my thoughts on that, and I'm sure we'll round out with some some other extemporaneous thoughts that I like to throw out there. But first, I want to talk about Caesars Sportsbook, especially to the Mets fans in New York. So Mets fans in New York, listen up. We have an offer from Caesars Sportsbook that you don't want to miss. New customers can get their first bet on Caesars up to $1,250. All you have to do is use our code TalkinMetsFull. No G with the talking. TalkinMetsFull at sign up. If you sign up with our code TalkinMetsFull, you will not only have your first bet insured, but you will also be directly supporting the podcast. So if you haven't signed up for Caesar Sportsbook, join with our code TalkinMetsFull and drop your first bet. 
This offer is only available for new customers who are 21 and over and physically present in New York. That's really important. Please gamble responsibly. If you or a loved one is, has a gambling problem, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. See podcast description for full terms. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks here. So welcome to the show. Um, you know, I'm not going to go too long onto the current Mets. A very frustrating weekend. Uh, Blue Jays are certainly a good team. You can see that. Great bullpen. Good offense. And I think everything that we've been talking about which frustrates us or even concerns us about this Mets team. Remember we talked consistently inconsistent just less than a week ago on Memorial Day. You saw this weekend. You saw Kodai Senga after a beautiful out against the Phillies where you think he's finally turning the corner, go back to being Kodai Senga, not getting into the fifth, walking a lot of batters, getting hit hard. You saw Chris Bassett, the one they let go, who I've been preaching about, give you what you would expect from your number three starter, a Chris Bassett outing, actually better than that, deep into the ball game, shut out baseball going into the eighth inning. Chris Bassett showed you what perhaps – this staff is missing. We'll see when Jose Quintana gets back. But you saw right in front of you what the starting pitching is lacking. And then the offense, and we'll get into that, and that'll be a major theme. I've always said this offense works its best when Lindor and Alonzo are both on. And I don't think this offense can score very much at all when both of them are significantly cold. I mean, Lindor striking out about eight times this weekend. Alonzo, before the home run, I think was in a 2-for-21 or 2-for-20 slump. Very rarely do you see both of those guys in such a deep funk. But just like I said about a 500 team, when they get the pitching, they don't hit. And when they hit a little bit, they don't get the pitching. You've seen a little bit of that over the course of this week. So not much has changed since Monday. We got our hopes up going into this road trip in Atlanta and Pittsburgh. Big road trip, first test against the Braves. Uh, Mets are back at 500. You thought after sweeping the Phillies that they were ready to start to push towards what we put out here at the Talking Mets, that goal of 10 games over 500. And, you know, quite honestly, they've taken a, a, a major step back and now go into Atlanta for a very difficult series. And if they don't win that series, we'll be under 500. And, and it's it's basically the problem we've talked about. You really can't start seriously catapulting towards any kind of momentum towards being a playoff team when you're not better than 500. Forget about being under 500. So as the Mets continue now, 60-so games in, muddling around in this, uh, you know, you really don't have a feel about, uh, you know, when these guys could start to uh, hit to the back of their baseball card. Will the pitching show consistency? I mean, this is the first bad starting pitching outing since Colorado. Uh, So very disappointing weekend. And one of the major themes that we've heard in at least the Twitterverse is complaints about the lineup. And, you know, Buck Showalter not playing Mark Vientos, who has not looked very good in his brief time up here in the big leagues. Occasionally sitting Brett Beatty like he did today uh, against a tough left-hander. Alvarez has gotten the most consistent playing time, of course. Anytime Tomas Nito starts, I mean, they want the guy to play every day, Alvarez. That's not realistic. And a big decision coming up with Nervaez coming back, you know, what will they do with the catching position? I cannot see them sending Alvarez down. His bat is too important. And uh, I know Nito's at option. So this will be an interesting week from a roster machination standpoint. But 
when you look at this Mets lineup, which is averaging right now going into today's game, and not much has changed after scoring four runs, 4.3 runs per game, which is a skusha below the league average of four and a half. It's a lineup. Now, I went to my old reliable baseball musings calculator. It's a lineup as currently constituted with not with career historical norms, but with the players performing as they uh, their numbers show up on the scoreboard going into this weekend. Uh, it's a lineup that's probably under-indexed by about a half a run a game, 4.7. Baseball Musings has them as a lineup that should score 4.7, 4.8 runs per game. And what I did is I played around a little bit with it. Now, there's some variability, you know, from best lineup to worst lineup. You know, currently as constituted the Mets lineup with Vogel back in it, not Vientos, should average between 4.2 and 4.7 runs per game. You know, you fall in the middle point there. You're about where they shake out, which is interesting how these very simple calculators that have been around a lot while, I have no idea how the brew works in there, start to shake out to what they're seeing. But playing around with it, I uh, I wanted to see what happens when you throw in, let's say, Vientos with uh, his numbers from the minor leagues. And that's where potentially you add some like Vientos uh, from the minor leagues, a guy who had an OPS over a thousand. You know, maybe now you see this lineup start to hit five, a little over five runs per game. It was asking a lot for Vientos, who was tearing up the international league, to do that. Even just taking and saying, can Vientos or some combination of Vientos and Vogelback perform what Vogelback did in the back half? of 2022 when he came over from Pittsburgh, which is an OP, uh, uh, an on-base percentage about 390, slugging about, you know, 436. You know, nothing crazy. You know, that lineup averages squish more than what the current group is at 4.8 runs per game. So, really, when you start to boil into a lot of this, when you start to complain about lineups and positions in lineups, and, you know, you look up and down this calculator it gives you all sorts of crazy options about what's the best, you know, lineup. You've got versions with McNeil leading off and versions with Nimmo leading off and versions where, you know, most versions with Vogel back batting ninth and in the middle of the order you have some iteration of Alonzo and Beatty and things like that. Uh, it, it's incremental. Like, it's amazing. You know, you go from maybe the, one of the worst lineups with, you know, Alonzo not, you know, with Alvarez batting cleanup. It's 4.762, and then the best lineup in that same group, you know, you're looking at a tenth of a run uh, of 4.77. I mean, really, when you start to dial in and play with the calculator, like the Baseball Musings lineup calculator, it really goes to show you how insignificant lineups are. Now, you know me for a while here. I don't really get into who's batting first, who's batting ninth. I mean, and the other part, and it was a quote, and this is where I think a lot of people – don't understand exactly the dynamic of the manager in front office. Uh, Buck Showalter doesn't make the lineup by himself. Uh, you know, Canna, Mark Cannon was actually talking to Anthony Reber of Newsday, and he even said that it's a, it's the analytics department's input, it's Buck's input, it's the front office's input. I mean, this is a collaborative effort with the lineup card. So any lineup you see out there on a night and a night at base, it's not like Buck taking a magic eight ball or taking a dart and throwing it at the board and saying, you know, I want to hit McNeil fifth today. I don't particularly care for 
having these guys move all around the lineup. I know Starling Marte had talked about how he always liked to bat second. He was slumping, starting to perk up a little bit. And perhaps you'll see him move back into the second hole. But other than Nimmo, and it's up until the last couple of weeks when Marte was moved down, you had all sorts of, you know, maybe Pete always stays in the cleanup hole. You had a lot of moving around between three and five, you know, Lindor and things like that. So, you know, honestly, uh, I like traditional lineups. Speed and on base at the top, power in the middle, your weaker hitters at the bottom of the lineup. I know sometimes I like to put McNeil there down at the bottom to maybe generate a little bit uh, of pop down there. Some, you know, it can be, especially when you don't have Alvarez in the lineup when Can is not hitting and that corner spot becomes a bit of a, you know, left field becomes a bit of a black hole. You want to add some juice to the bottom of the lineup. But, you know, in general, the angst over lineups and who's hitting where and who's in and who's out, there's not a big upgrade or downgrade right now. Vientos has not shown that he's a significant upgrade from Vogelback. And even furthermore, uh, as things settle in and as he's going around the league a little bit, Beatty hasn't been much better than Escobar. And I, I laugh because this is the exact conversation we had earlier in the year. When people are upset, Mike, why are you so insistent on Beatty starting out in the minor leagues? Who cares about Escobar? Who cares about Vogelback? Well, guess what? If Vientos and Beatty continue on the trajectory, they're not really hitting. I think Beatty's more safe than Vientos. And you had given away or released valuable veteran pieces like Escobar and Vogelback. Where would you be right now? You'd have to play Beatty. You'd have to play Vientos, and regar- regardless of whether they're ready or not. Now, I think part of the conversation and part of the inconsistency with the lineup is that right now, when Vogelbatt's not in the lineup and Vientos is, you're relying on a 30-year lineup of being developing young players that were not in the opening day lineup and were playing at Syracuse the first couple of weeks of the season. Now, they're top prospects, so they're not you know filler, but... This, again, adds to some of the challenges that this team is facing as it gets into the second third of the season where you're trying to build momentum, you're trying to build consistency, you get it a little bit with your starters, most of them starting to hit their stride. The bullpen is what it is. You know bullpens are going to be a little bit up and down and streaky. But now your offense has to find itself because it's got these kids in there. And maybe it's even a little unsettled because you have Navarez coming back. So what's going to happen there with the catching situation? And, uh, you know, away you go and you have this kind of uncertainty. So every time we turn and have a conversation about the 2023 Mets, it seems like everything is a puzzle on the, on the table. We're trying to fit it and figure out what's the best version to move forward. And every time we come back, we think we have the answer, but we're not sure, which is why I think this regular season is going to be a tough one. I think the Mets are a team that can make it into the wild card. And I think the hope is that everything's going to peak and flow at the right time. We talked a little bit about how we're now in, we're past the getting to know you phase. We understand what these Mets are all about. What do they need? You know, we talked maybe about a corner outfield position, depending on Canon and Marte, but listening to Billy Epler talk to the media on Friday, it's pitching, pitching, and more pitching. If this team is going to make any kind of run and invest in this 2023 team, and I, right now I can't see them not because it's too congested, the the league, f- to just say, okay, this is in our year, despite the disappointments of the first 60 or so games. Uh, it, I would expect the Mets to go out and get more bullpen help. As far as starting pitching help, that's more complicated. But who knows? I always talk about, like I said earlier in the week, 
maybe a Kyle Gibson type of, you know, kind of the moves the Phillies made last year, I think are very similar. Bringing in bullpen arms, bringing in back of the rotation, not as expensive starters that could give you some quality six innings, three runs, maybe not sexy, maybe not top of the rotation, but just quality starts to keep you in the ball game. And, and also keeping the ball, ca- ball game without burning the bullpen like you had to do today because Senga couldn't get out of the third inning. So anyway, you know, not much has changed. Consistently inconsistent. Wanted to address the lineup. Wanted to kind of throw you some numbers from our calculator there, the back of the paper bag math that we like to do, and show you it's not a big deal. This offense is either going to sink or swim. As we said for weeks on the back of the baseball card of guys like Marte and Canna, and Lindor, I've never seen Lindor, even in 2021, in such a slump. You know, you heard him on the way in. He's taking accountability. Not quite sure I believe exactly what he said. There was a long pause in that quote that he loves the fans booing him. I think a lot of this goes back to the expectations and the pressure. And and even guys like Lindor and Alonzo and, and, and McNeil and Nimmo, they all feel responsibility uh, to get this thing headed in the right direction. And the only way it's going to get in the right direction is everybody being who they're supposed to be, everybody playing within themselves. And right now Lindor's in this deep funk, especially left-handed, where a majority of his plate appearances are going to happen. So that's a huge concern. You, yes, you got Omar Vizquel again with Pop. Last year you got an elite, you know, all-around offensive-defensive shortstop that at times was carrying the team. This year, you're getting more of the 2021 version, which was Omar Vizquel with Pop. And, uh, you know, his defense hasn't suffered. That was a tough play he had to make yesterday where the run came in, that hot shot up the middle. I think he, uh, Lindor peak, Lindor right, I think makes the play, but it's when one of those kind of slumps where Murphy's Law, the ball finds you. So uh, we'll see what Atlanta brings. Not the best timing to be back at 500 going on the road. Pittsburgh, a plucky team, playing well, not a not an easy road trip. And, uh, you know, it goes back to what I keep saying. There's not much we can talk about here other than sitting back and waiting for this team to start to hit to the back of their baseball card like you saw Marte do a little bit. Maybe Khan is starting to do a little bit of that. And now when those guys are starting to get into the groove, the Lindors are falling back, Pete Alonso's falling back, McNeil continues to show inconsistency, Nimmo has been in and out, but... You know, you can't expect all nine guys to be hot at the same time, um, and away you go. So, all right, let's take a quick break. When I come back, I wanted to say a few words about the Mets Hall of Famers, Howard Johnson, Al Leiter, Gary Cohen, Howie Rose, and then uh, we'll get to Greg Prince. I had a conversation with Greg Prince before the game today as uh, he was at the Mets Hall of Fame celebration on Saturday, and with that I mean, everybody knows the blog, Faith and Fear and Flush, and he's been writing it for 20 years. Uh, Who else better to talk about Mets history than someone who seems to know everything about Mets history dating all the way back to 1962? So let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more, particularly Mets Hall of Fame, right after this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This one is gone. Goodbye. Tied with Daryl Strawberry. His 30th home run of the year. Oh, boy. Hit the scoreboard. 
get to check out Candy Maldonado when the ball was hit the right fielder. Roger Craig said, give me that bat. Before tonight, the runner goes, the pitch swung on a miss, the throw to Garner, too late. And Johnson's in there anyway. So Howard gets a little closer to the 30-30, and he hopes not the third 30 club with his 26th field. On the mound for the Mets, the left-hander, and he's their big game pitcher, Al Leiter. But the runner takes the lead. There's the pitch on the way. Strike three call. Al Leiter struck out Greg Bond, and the inning is over. The one-two to Nagel. Swing and a miss. He got him. There's strikeout number two for Al Leiter. One man down in the third. Now Leiter ready. The two-two to Casey. Swing and a miss. He got him with a curveball. Leiter strikes out Sean Casey to end the inning. Second strikeout for Leiter. Now Leiter kicks into the windup. The 2-2 to Vaughn. Swing and a miss. He got him. Leiter threw an off-speed pitch out of way, and he strikes out Vaughn. Here's the 1-2 pitch. Swing and a miss. Struck him out. Number five for Al Leiter. Crowd rising here in Cincinnati. It's 3-2 to Larkin. Here's the payoff pitch. On the outside corner. Strike three called. Leiter with an off-speed pitch gets Barry Larkin looking. And Larkin looks back at Bruce Fremming in disbelief. Leiter with strikeout number six. He's now retired nine reds in a row. What a terrific pitch by Al Leiter. He dented that outside corner with a curveball. The tenth time there's been a tiebreaker playoff in the history of Major League Baseball. And up to now, one of the greatest pitching performances ever seen in one of these. And it's caught by Alfonso at second base. And Al Leiter has completed a two-game, a two-hit shutout. And it has put the Mets into the playoffs for the first time in 11 years. And this one was Leiter's first complete game of the season. Sitting at the plate, Schwinnard set. The 3-1 pitch, and a drive in the air to deep left field, down the line. Gone if it stays fair. That ball is out of here, out of here. Grand slam home run. Alfonso, a grand slam in the top of the ninth. And the Mets have taken an 8-4 lead. Alfonso hit it out of sight down the left field line, just inside the foul pole. His second home run of the game. Alfonso with a grand slam with two out of the top of the ninth. And the Mets have taken an 8-4 lead. A pitch to Piazza. Swing and a drive. Deep down the left field line. Toward the corner. It's out of here! Out of here! Mike Piazza with a line drive three-run homer. Just inside the left field foul pole. The Mets have tied a club record with a 10-run inning. And they've taken the lead 11-8. Now Ben's in for the sign. Come set. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there. Strike three called. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets have won the National League pennant. Put it in the box. The New York Mets, for the first time in 15 years, are champions of the National League. And they are mobbing each other out behind the pitcher's mound. They have completed a four-game sweep of the Chicago Cubs in the National League Championship Series. They win game four, eight to three. All right, we're back. Talking Mets podcast. So really excited to get to Greg Prince, but I wanted to give a, a few quick thoughts here about the Hall of Fame inductees. You'll start with the two that are 
you know, not much different. You know, they don't have 40-40 seasons or 30-30 seasons or 15 strikeout performances and all that other stuff. They're just two regular guys from New York City, grew up watching the Mets, rooting for the Mets, and somehow, as fate has taken them in their careers in broadcasting, have become household names with the Mets, one doing radio, one doing television, both doing radio at one point. That's Howie Rose and Gary Cohen. And I had somebody who's a Mets fan say, you know, really, you know, is the Mets that kind of organization where they have to put broadcasters in the Hall of Fame? And my message to those fans who say that is yes, and I've said this before, when we had our uh, Voices of the Game segment with Kurt McKnight a few weeks ago, we talked about how lucky we are as Mets fans to have Hall of Fame broadcasters from day one, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, uh, and then even before Howie Rose and Gary Cohen, you had Tim McCarver, Steve Sabritsky, Ralph Kiner on the broadcasts. And when Howie and Gary Cohen were the next generation started to make their way into the Mets universe, much different time. I mean, Howie, and I've said this before, my introduction to Howie Rose was Mets Extra, interviewing Davey Johnson, going after Davey Johnson. Hardcore. I mean, fans would call in and Davey would take calls from fans on the WFAN. Uh, pre or po- I think it was during the pregame sometimes. And even Gary Cohen, when he was a broadcaster of Bob Murphy, they had a point, this is in the infancy of WFAN from 87 to about 92, 93, 94, where immediately, almost minutes after the game, similar to how Steve Gelbs would pull a player over, the manager would, would get on with Gary Cohen. I remember so many times Jeff Torborg, still heated from a loss, getting grilled by Gary about a decision and and talking a little bit about things that happened during the game. So much different media uh, point of view. Howie was hard-hitting. He, he said the things that were on the fans' mind. He said it with spirit. He said it where he demanded an answer. Gary Cohen, with his his passion behind his radio call, instantly, uh, you know, with Bob Murphy, and then later when Bob retired, uh, you know, transitioned and became the voice of summer for Mets fans. Uh, the all-time best calls, and then how we obviously got into the broadcast booth later on. My favorite Gary Cohen call, if you want to have a synopsis, is September of 98, Mike Piazza hits a home run off of Billy Wagner to tie the game, a big series against the Ashes in the Dome. Mets chasing down the Cubs, and Gary goes, it's out of here, it's out of here. Like, you had to be there as the Mets were making their way back from five or six years of second division baseball, and that series was one of the first big series, September series, in a long time and the Mets were playing dramatic baseball, and you could hear it in Gary's voice because Gary had taken over in 89, and almost immediately, and he talked about this on the broadcast uh, with with Keith and Ron, the Mets went into a bit of a uh, you know downturn. There wasn't many big moments in the first five, six, or seven years of Gary Cohen's broadcasting career. Now, as far as Howie, you know, a lot of my memories and a lot of my introduction to Howie was on Mets Extra, but then he started doing broadcasts on Sports Channel with Fran Healy. And I don't know if it was 96 or 97. I particularly remember one game in early summer 97. I think it was a game where the Mets were playing the Expos. Pedro Martinez was pitching for the Expos. This is the height of Pedro. Unhittable. And I believe they were, he was going mano a mano with Bobby Jones, who was the Mets' ace on that 
Mets team. You know, obviously Bobby Jones is a number three, number four starter, but he was the ace on that staff. And the Mets wound up coming back. I think it was Carlos Bayager getting a game-winning single in the bottom of the ninth inning to beat the Expos. And I heard Howie say, put it in the books. And I'm like, that's a great line. And it's grown, and obviously that's been his deal for a long time since. I don't know if anybody, maybe you guys could email me if anybody's actually uh, asked Howie like when he coined that phrase. I didn't hear him say anything about it. Maybe I missed it. But that to me is is ultimately, you know, my two memories of those guys. Well deserved. And how blessed are we as Mets fans that not only do we have these Hall of Fame broadcasters, but they grew up rooting for the team and being part of the culture and fabric of the city. That's rare. You know, Bob Murphy wasn't from New York. Tim McCarver wasn't from New York. And I heard Gary say that before they hired him to be uh, the front man of the Gary, Keith, and Ron booth, they were looking at Dave O'Brien or Ted Robinson. Ted Robinson, who had done Mets games, I believe, for Channel 11, maybe, or Channel 9, uh, when Seaver was around. Nothing against those guys. They're fine broadcasters. But they would not have the connection, the total connection, that a Mets fan will have with an announcer that doesn't show favoritism. Neither are homers. And neither are the other way where they go overly hard on the Mets because they want to show they're impartial. But, you know, both who you know are bleeding the same orange and blue that you're bleeding while you're listening to that broadcast or watching the broadcast, whatever medium you're trying to use. So congratulations, Howie. Congratulations, Gary. The Mets, I mean, what? I mean, I hope they last forever. You know everybody has an expiration date. Everybody eventually wants to retire because it's going to be very hard to fill those shoes. And as Mets, as someone who's covering the Mets and rooted for the Mets, you figure you've been so lucky since 1962, 60-plus years with broadcasters. Eventually you're going to get one wrong, and they haven't. And the fear is what's next after Howie and Gary and even Keith and Ron move on and retire How can you get the next Hall of Fame booth? Because the bar is so high for anybody that comes after. Really high. So it's one of those things where the Mets have been all time. They may have not been all time on the field all the time. Perpetual disappointment by bursts of extraordinary wins is, I think, the way Gary Cohen talked about it. But in the booth, it's not been like that. Now, moving on to the field... Howard Johnson and Al Leiter didn't play together, played for different successful Mets teams. But both, as I look back and thought about their careers, both are underrated. I think they were underrated before they came to the Mets and were not looked at as big a piece as they turned out to be during their tenures. They certainly were underrated during their time on the Mets. And at times, we viewed them with what they couldn't do versus what they were providing. And then post-game post, post game here, as they leave and their careers take them elsewhere, I'm not sure we appreciated how much they brought. But now looking back and you look at both of them, they are really good Mets who performed at a very, very high level. Al Leiter, during his tenure with the Mets, and I just did some quick, you know, 98 to 2004, that's when Al played for the Mets. He was number 12 in wins above replacement, in all of baseball. I mean, he was right there in his win shares with Glavin and Maddox. Now, I understand Glavin and Maddox were towards the back half of their careers, and some of that 
Glavin crossed over to his time with the Mets. But you're on a list with guys like Tim Hudson, Kevin Brown, Roger Clemens, Mike Mussina, Kurt Schilling, Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson. Those are some of the names ahead of him. Not many. I mean, that is elite status. I mean, he was a big game pitcher. We all know about, and everyone talks about game number 163 against the Reds, but you want to know what, to me, the ultimate personification of what Al Leiter meant to the Mets from 98 to 2004 was game five of the 2000 World Series. I think he did 145, 150 pitches, and if not for a CNI single by Luis So, he probably pitches the Mets back to Yankee Stadium. And, I mean, Al left it all out that night. I think that entire – Al personified what that 2000 Mets team was trying to do. They were up against it with the Yankees. Everything wrong that could go wrong went against them in that series. It almost seems like every bounce went against them. They had the unlucky loss in game one. And Al tried to will that ground ball to Kurt Abbott. And it just – it didn't happen. The Mets lose. But the effort and how he left it there on the field personified who Al Leiter was. When there was a big game, he was showing up. He was not only showing up, he was putting in as much as he could to keep the Mets in the ball game. And that's how I remember him throughout his tenure. You know, a lot of people said he wasn't an ace. I just gave you the numbers that said maybe he was more of an ace than you thought. Certainly helped when Mike Hampton was there for the year to kind of take the burden off him. It was like one in one A. But to me, Al Leiter, and a personal story about Al Leiter, I'll, I'll even, you know, Al was great. I mean, as you know, you saw his speech yesterday with the media. He liked to hold court. He was great when he would go on Mike and the Mad Dog. He would challenge them. He wouldn't take any of their BS. He would question some of their narratives in their mind. So I always knew he liked to mess around with them. Uh, Right before the uh, Subway Series Sunday game at Shea Stadium in 99, uh, a game that the Mets were looking at the day after the Matt Franco game, I was at the ball game. So I decided to go down right outside to Chase Stadium where the bullpen is the players warming up. There was Dennis Cook and Al just kibitzing out there. And I go, hey, Al, I screamed to him, do the Mad Dog impression. And Al turns around and does a perfect, great Chris, Christopher Mad Dog Russo impression for me. Dennis Cook's looking at him like, what the hell is wrong with you? And it was great. And he wouldn't stop because as more of the fans were getting into it, Al would go on and on and on. It was a great, great, great impression of Al uh, did of Christopher Russo, and that's my personal interaction uh, with Al Leiter uh, during a time where the team was feeling good. They'd come off a big win, Subway Series, things like that. Now, Howard Johnson's interesting because, similar to Al, he you know, wasn't always looked at of what he did well. He wasn't a great defensive player, had trouble with his throws, but he played all over the diamond, including the outfield during his Mets tenure. I mean, a lot of people forget he was pushed, put the center field towards the end of his tenure, played a lot of shortstop mainly played third base. And when you look at him as a third baseman during that period, other than maybe a Wade Boggs or somebody like that, there wasn't many third basemen better than Hojo during that 87 to 91 period. And power-wise, you know what? who was uh, home run-wise? You know who was uh, he hanging out with? He was fourth in home runs during that period. McGuire, Strawberry, and Kinsenko were ahead of him. I mean, McGuire and Kinsenko were elite power hitters. I mean, he had more home runs than McGriff and Andre Dawson. Hall of Famers, Joe Carter, Hall of Famer. Um, so Hojo certainly was uh, a very valuable uh, player. Top 25 in win shares, stolen bases, top 15. I mean, think about a player today who has power, can play multiple positions, can steal bases, drive in runs. 
that's an elite player. That's a player they'd be making a big deal about. I think the analytics guys would be making a big deal about. Now, he wasn't great at every position, but he didn't complain. You want me to play shortstop? Kevin Elster's out for the year? Put me at shortstop. Move Greg Jeffries to third. Need a center fielder? I'll play center field. Need a corner outfielder? I'll play the outfield. Uh, he wasn't bad. He wasn't, you know, terrible in the outfield either. It wasn't like he was Keith Miller or Juan Samuel who struggled out there. He was okay. He was serviceable. He wasn't embarrassing to himself. So, you know, who can forget Hojo saying, I'll do better than Knight. I remember the headline in the newspaper, spring of 87, after Ray Knight had left. And sure enough, Hojo goes out there and does 30-30 and was a big offensive cog to that Mets team. Think about it. Without Hojo, yeah, they had McReynolds. You know, Mitchell was traded for him. But the inevitable decline of Carter and Hernandez, some of that was buffered by the fact that Hojo was really, really good. Even the years you consider down years, like 88-90, still a guy who hit 25 home runs and drove in 90 runs. I mean, a really valuable piece, a star, an all-star in a lineup. And, I mean, who could forget Whitey Herzog taking his bat, accusing him of being corked. Everybody in denial about why Hojo's hitting all these home runs. He always had power. He was a little disappointing his first couple of years with the Mets, more of a backup player. But this is a deserved uh, day for both Hojo and Leiter. Big parts of successful Mets teams. Hojo was on a championship team, albeit as a backup. Leiter just, and he even brought it up yesterday to Todd Zeal, who was the MC, just missed on winning a championship in 2000. And away you go. So always good to share memories. We'll hear from Greg Prince. We'll hear who he thinks should be next. I'll give you some of my thoughts on who should be next on the way out of the program. But let's take a quick break. When we come back, Greg Prince will join me. Let's hear his thoughts on Howie Rose, Gary Cohen, Howard Johnson, Al Leiter, and some of his memories. You're listening to Talking Mets Podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets Podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets Podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. We're back, and joining me, you guys know him. It's great that we could actually do these segments a little bit more frequently than once every old half dozen years. Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing, National League Town Podcast. He's uh, our resident Mets historian, Greg, welcome to the program. I know you were at the ballpark yesterday. Maybe not the same weather as last year for like the Keith Hernandez ceremony and Old Timers Day. Maybe not the same Mets luminaries like a Keith Hernandez, but another great day for the Mets to celebrate their history. And uh, you were part of it. So uh, welcome back to the program. Talk to us a little bit. How was it at the ballpark yesterday? Uh, First, thank you very much for having me, Mike. And yes, I was there. I wouldn't miss one of these for the world unless I actually got the world. And then maybe I'd have to think about it. But uh, yeah, you know what? You're, you're right about the, the overcast skies. Usually these things have overcast skies. Last year being a wonderful exception. I don't know why that is. Maybe the heavens are weeping with joy when the Mets finally remember to honor themselves. But it was a great day at City Field. I dare say it was a great Shea Stadium day at City right. Field. 
many invocations of Shea Stadium from the honorees. And if you want to get an applause line since 2009 in a room full of Mets fans, just say Shea Stadium and people light up. And when you have the context for this, two players who excelled at Shea Stadium and two announcers who grew up at Shea Stadium and broke into the business and made their names at Shea Stadium uh, with everybody having beautiful, unsullied memories of Shea Stadium on a day like this, you can't go wrong. Absolutely. Let's start with the broadcasters. I know that they weren't the on the field luminaries, but I was doing a broadcasting segment earlier in the year. And uh, I thought to myself as I was preparing for it, how lucky I've been. And then you go back to 1962 for all the things you could criticize the Mets for. They've been Hall of Fame day one in the booth. Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy. And then me as a young Mets fan, 10 years old, listening to Howie Rose on Mets Extra. I wish current day Mets fans could know the version of Howie, because I know you remember that. The hard-hitting interviews with Davey Johnson, with Buddy Harrelson. You know, Howie's got a little uh, edge to him. I don't think people realize that. You know, he's nice and he's put it in the books and he's happy on the air. But the Howie that grew up with WFAN had a little bit of a bite. And then Gary Cohen, who was almost like the apprentice to Bob Murphy, we didn't realize it at the time. He did his own little, uh, you know, people forget, you know, right after the game, his little interviews going after Jeff Torborg. But those phrases that we've come to know and love, put it in the books and it's out of here. You know, I was even thinking, Greg, when is the first time I heard put it into the books with Howie? And Uh, I I think it's 1997-ish, and I remember a big win against Pedro Martinez in the Expos. I think it was a Carlos Baerga walk-off. And I remember hearing Howie say put it in the books. I'm like, that's pretty cool. And then a year later, I hear Gary Cohen's, it's out of here, it's out of here, when Piazza hits his 200th home run in Houston. That crazy series, I'm sure you remember. And I think those two lines, that's kind of where they all, for me personally, were born. Yeah, the, you know, an, an era was, was coming together at that point, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, to your observation that the Mets have always been a, an Hall, a Hall of Fame outfit when it comes to broadcasting. No, look, look no further than Cooperstown, <laughs> where the first three broadcasters all have been honored. One as a player, Ralph Kiner, who could very well be there as an announcer if they allowed double dipping. I don't think they do. And the other two, Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson, and their portfolios speak for themselves and spoke to us. And in the interim, before we got to know Howie and Gary, uh, a shout out to the late Tim McCarver, who I think reinvented yep. baseball analysis. and He did it in the Mets booth. And a shout out to Gary Thorne who was a hell of a voice and a hell of a partner to Bob Murphy. And when he left after four years following the 1988 season, I'm thinking, well, who are they going to get to replace the great Gary Thorne? You know, this was a great team. This was a great radio listen. Who the hell is Gary Cohen? And I was happily informed in the years to come who Gary Cohen was. And Gary Cohen to me is what, what the way people have spoken and rightly so about Vin Scully is the way I find myself thinking about Gary Cohn. He just the perfect radio announcer who somehow become the ideal television announcer. And one of the things he said before the game at the press conference they had, when he was asked, uh, you know, what, what are uh, some of your favorite calls? And he said, I honestly, I think it's less about, you know, 15 second 
calls of memorable plays than the fact that you spend 500 hours talking to fans through the radio or through the television. And I, I think that that's what nails it with, with broadcasting, that you, you need to want to spend time with these guys, want to have these voices in your ears. You want them coming at you every night at 7.10. And from the earliest meeting of Gary Cohn via the radio, that's how I felt about him. That's how I felt about Howie Rose. You brought up Mets Extra. To me, if, if Howie Rose had never done a single game as a play-by-play announcer, had never gone to television, had never said, put it in the books, 96, 97, whenever he first said it, to me, he's a Mets Hall of Fame broadcaster for Mets Extra and sure. those early years. And speaking for us in a way I don't think any broadcaster before ever had, and in a way never has since. Nobody got it exactly the way Howie Rose did, understanding what concerned us, what we wanted to know, what made us happy, what made us frustrated. Uh, you know, there, there have come a lot of broadcasters who will put up a big front and get angry or whatever about last night's game, but Howie always backed it up and Howie was always incredibly professional. That's what I love about both of them, that the lesson they took from Murph and Ralph and Lindsay, that yes, you could be supportive of the Mets and you could feel that it meant something to them that they won or that they lost, but it was never first person plural. It was never we, us, our, it was always the game. It was always giving credit where credit was due to those pitchers and those batters who may have beaten the Mets that night. You know, I grew up watching Kiner's Corner with the star of the game, not the star of the Mets. That sort of thing was pounded into me at an early age that you have to respect what you've just seen. But to have that and then have it come from two guys who you knew in their hearts wanted to win the game as badly as you did uh, meant the world and that they've just molded themselves year after year. Uh, you know, it's beautiful that they're in the Hall of Fame, that they both have you know, more than three decades going on four in service to the microphone and Mets fans. I don't think they've peaked. I think they're in their prime and continue to be in their prime. And every broadcast is a delight. And, you know, in Howie's case, I think he's made every one of his partners better right, right up to the present day where I, I envy Keith Rad for learning from the master of Mets broadcasting. And no matter, you'll notice sometimes, you know, Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, they're Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. They need no introduction. When you get a Todd Zeal sitting in the booth, when you get a Jerry Blevin sitting in the booth, good players and likable personalities, just in, the, in those, Anthony Recker, I remember a couple of years ago, these guys aren't broadcasters per se, but sitting with Gary, they turned into broadcasters. They turned in two really valuable voices for those nine innings. And, and Gary just has that way of bringing it out. And that's just, you know, one element of what Gary does. I, I went back, listened to some of his calls in the week prior to th this induction. I was just always amazed by how Gary got every detail in that you wanted. Again, he says it's not about the calls, but they, go, go find the... Uh, the climax to the 10 running, the Piazza three run homer yep. against Atlanta. He yep. tells you everything that you're, while you're processing why this was the greatest home run you've ever experienced. 
Right. He's telling you exactly why you feel that way. Because not only is it a 10-run inning, but it's the first 10-run inning in more than 20 years. And it's against Atlanta. And Piazza has extended an RBI streak. And they have come all the way back in a game that you can't believe. And he calls it incredible twice. And you know it's not hyperbole. Just, again, one call in, in a career of them. And, you know, the other night, there's a rain delay. So they're showing amazing finishes, 2019. And, you know, inevitably it's Gary Cohn getting excited at the end of a game when we're talking about amazing finishes. And at this point, Gary Cohn's at it for more than 30 years. And you might think, well, I'm a professional announcer. I've seen it all. The Mets have won. That's good. Let's finish up and go to commercial. He is as excited in 2019 or 2023 as I imagine he was in 1966, watching a game at Shea Stadium or listening on his transistor radio. And as excited as he was for Piazza or as excited as he was for Strawberry when he first started. Uh, you can fake that. It's it's genuine. Both of them, it's genuine. And when, when Howie says, you know, the one call he's looking forward to making is the one that's beyond the one he got to do in Chicago in 2015. That one, which he always singles out as one of his favorites, the Mets win the pennant, not because it was a great call, but because of what it meant to him to be able to say that, you know, someday... God willing, uh, Howie Rhodes will be able to say something more than the Mets win the pennant at the end of a series in October. And I look forward to that. And I only hope by then uh, they will amend broadcasting rules. <laughs> so there is some sort of uh, hometown broadcast, a la the national championship game in football, where we can hear Gary Cohn do one as well. Or maybe we can we can all just ask him nicely. Hey, could, do you think you could record one so we could have you and Howie doing it? But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. The reality we live in is Howie and Gary are in the Mets Hall of Fame so deservedly so. And it was a thrill to witness it. Before we get to the two players, I think the other part that you may never see again is these are guys, like you said earlier, that were in the upper deck at uh, Shea Stadium. No different than you and I. Different career paths, obviously, growing up, thinking about the Mets, circling it around their life. Um, and then they get into the booth, and and I heard Gary talk about how they were looking for maybe Dave O'Brien or Ted Robinson when they were bringing in the booth with Keith and Ron. You know, you've had Tom Seaver, Fran Healy. Uh, you mentioned Tim McCarver, the best of the best out of all of them, and there's nothing wrong because the Mets have had, even with their ancillary announcers, top-notch. I mean, McCarver goes on to do the national game, but it wouldn't be the same, I think, you and I talking, if they had the same career, if not for the fact that they were – like the people that are listening to this broadcast that I'm doing now. We're the same. And I think that adds another level of connection and specialness to who they are. Take them as who they are now, but say Howie's from Chicago and Gary's from, you know, down south. Not the same, you know, not quite the same, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, listen, Bob Murphy was from Oklahoma. Lindsey Nelson was from Tennessee. Uh, Tim McCarver was from Tennessee. You can get a great announcer for the New York market from somewhere else, but there is something very special that they are from the heart of Mets country, both geographically and psychically. And we can only hope for the future. I don't know if I'll be around to experience it because I hope it's a long time from now, but in, in, in the future beyond these guys, I hope it's, there's somebody who grew up in the promenade at city field 
somebody who I guess that you don't put transistors under your pillow anymore, but no. somebody who immediately installed the MLB at bat app as, as soon as he or she were old enough to do so and grew up listening to Howie Rose or watching Gary Cohn and took those lessons. Because, you know, a couple of the people who've come in and out of the booth over the years also grew up as Mets fans. Uh, Tom McCarthy grew up as a Mets fan. Ted mm-hmm. Robinson grew up as a Mets fan. We know Keith Rad did as well. And it's, you know, he's in his early stages. Those other guys are not, not to cast aspersions, but it's just growing up a Mets fan isn't enough, I think we've learned <laughs> over the years. You, you have to just take it, I don't want to say seriously as death, but you have to take, take it as, as your life which is what fans like us do, hopefully not to our detriment in the rest of our lives. And you have to be able to articulate that. You have to be able to process it and put it out there. And at the same time that you're talking to the super diehard, really informed, really historically minded fan, you also have to be talking to, I don't want to say the casual fan, because I don't think Mets fans are casual about the Mets, but to the fan who doesn't, who lives and dies, but, can go to sleep after a loss and that's what they can do i think that that's why they connect so well with so many people when you get to the two players howard johnson al Leiter, you know now I, I i tell you i start to feel old i'm looking at al Leiter and the wild card game highlights i'm like i remember that like it was yesterday i see a a, a collage of home runs from hojo um and i see a game against the reds in 87 that i remember going to like one of the few times I got to go to a game in the, you know, the mid eighties, you know, tickets were hard to come by. They were expensive, things like that for the, for the time. But as I dived into their careers, as I looked at them versus their peers during the periods that they were at their height with the Mets, I think we underrated both. Hojo's a top 25 in advanced statistical value from the period of 87 to 91, top five in home runs, top 15 in stolen bases. That's an elite player. Other than Daryl Strawberry, you could argue with Strawberry leaving in 91, you know, Hojo was right there in terms of production with the with the Mets. And, and he was versatile. I mean, people forget he, he played center field. At the end of his career, when he had all this other stuff going on and his health was declining, they put him in the outfield. You know, in center field, the same position that Keith Miller struggled at, that Juan Samuel struggled at, that, you know, there's so many jokes about. It's a position that I think today we wouldn't, you know, talking about the modern game, you know, let's just, you know, we had questions about Brandon Nimmo, who is a center fielder, whether he could play center field. This guy was a third baseman, a shortstop, wound up even playing second when he left the Mets after his career uh, with the Mets ended. And then Al Leiter, a guy that we always heard, well, the Mets don't have an ace. He's really a number two. And they brought in Mike Hampton at that point, And even Tom Glavin later on his numbers during his peak of his Mets career to 2004 right there with Maddox, right there with Glavin, understand towards the back half of their career. And he was basically, you know, top 10 pitcher in the, in baseball. Uh, he wasn't Randy Johnson, maybe. Uh, he wasn't maybe in that elk, but he was pretty darn good. So I think both big parts of Mets history, both very underrated, I think, in the context of how we looked at them back then. Yeah, I think when you live with players every day or starting pitchers every five days, it's easy enough not to see their excellence because inevitably they're going to make outs and they're going to give up hits. And you kind of wonder why can't we do better sometimes? I think you, you, you hit on something with Al. He pitched in the age of, like you said, Randy Johnson, Tom Glavin, 
we'll talk about Tom Glavin pre-Mets. Uh, you know, two of the greatest lefties of all time, Greg Maddox, Pedro Martinez. You know, the, these were guys who were at the height. So there's a lot, not a lot to talk about in an age of hitting when you're talking about these pitchers. It's like, well, those are the great pitchers. Everybody else is a hitter, but you know, Al Leiter was out there doing it for, for the rest of us. I, I, I kind of uh, I've suddenly had this this thought of Harold Baines, who I know got clobbered. Uh, his his election to the Hall of Fame or selection to the Hall of Fame got clobbered because, you know, he's it's I hate this cliche. It's not the Hall of Very Good. Well, you know what? Very good often means more than very good. And somebody yeah. should stand up for the very good because often they ebb into the pretty great. And I think that's what Al Leiter was in a larger sense. You know, he had that kind of 1A reputation as opposed to being your number one guy. But for us, he was our number one guy. For us, I don't, I don't think there was any, there shouldn't have been any underrating him. And, you know, that was during that strange period in Mets history that was known more for hitting than pitching, certainly more than starting pitching. But, you know, you're, you're throwing out Al Leiter and Rick Reed and Bobby Jones, even Masato Yoshi. It wasn't a bad rotation, and you're, you're filling in uh, the various Oral Hershizers and later Mike Hampton. Glendon Rush don't don't need to go down the roster. Uh, you're saying that that Leiter was the leader of all of that, and you know make the playoffs as they did two years in a row back when that was more difficult to achieve than it is now, or we hope it's not too difficult to achieve this year uh, without somebody being the titular ace for us. That was Al Leiter, and boy did he pitch some big games. Boy did they trust him to pitch big games and. With rare exception, he came through. He was the guy you wanted out there. And and what I loved about Al is that he loved being that guy. He was conscious of it. He inhabited that role. And he talked yesterday before the ceremonies, and I guess he talked about during the ceremonies too, how much it meant to him to be not just a major league pitcher or a pitcher on the Mets who was traded there and good team and whatever. He was a Mets fan. And I got the sense, listen, you're professional, you're, you, you put that aside, I imagine, but I don't think that ever left him all those years with the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Marlins. And I don't think it's a stretch to say he was born to, to be a New York Mets starting pitcher. So, you know, if, if, if you needed any extra credit, not that he did, given all he did across seven years, to put him in the Mets Hall of Fame, to me, like... That that alone you, is worthy of you honor. know, Greg. My my example of Al Leiter in a Mets uniform was Game Five of the 2000 World Series. I mean, 150 pitches. Think about that today. That be I use the old term. There'd be a military tribunal against the manager doing that. Um, if not for a seeing eye single by Louis Soho, maybe they win that game. He literally tried to drag that series back to Yankee Stadium. No and, bullpen. No bullpen. Yeah. No help. I'll do this, and you know. Maybe if Francisco Lindor or Ray Ordonia is at the shortstop, maybe the, we're talking about something different now, maybe not. But that, to me, showed who Al Leiter was, just trying to drag them to the Yankee Stadium. And that's yeah, who Al, Leiter, Al Leiter gave the Yankees fits in those years, not just in that World Series. Those two games where it felt like forces were conspiring <laughs> to keep the Mets from yep. finally winning. But just you know, remember, so uh, interleague play comes into being the year that Al comes to the Mets, or you know, I should say, inter the Subway Series at Shea Stadium 
came into being. It existed the year before the one trip to Yankee Stadium. Then 98, they come to Shea Stadium. And then every year it's home and home. And every year it seemed the rotation was set up to make sure Outwider faced them at the height of their powers. And I remember a quote from Paul O'Neill just muttering about why I think the, the phrase was lighter, lighter, lighter. Why do we always have to see lighter? Because he he had that cut fastball going. They would pound it to third base, pound it to Ventura. Uh, lucky if they got anything out of it. Yeah. And, you know, again, this was a guy who, against the Mets' best opponents and the most Mets' most crucial games, just kept, not, not just kept you in games, got you late into games. And yeah, ninth innings in what turned out to be deciding World Series games uh, are rarely the province of starting pitchers anymore. And maybe there's a good reason for that, but, but lighters from another age. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it was long enough ago, I suppose. And he, uh, yeah, he carried them. Uh, when the offense reverted, as Met offenses sometimes do, uh, Al was still out there. And, you know, 142 pitches, whatever it was, I didn't want to take him out. No, I, I didn't. Wasn't say, even okay. a thought in your mind back yeah. then as a fan. No, it yeah. wasn't a thought. And, you know, this Greg, wasn't, this, this wasn't the era of complete games either. I still nope. wanted him in there. No, amazing. And it would Hojo. I always remember the headline in spring of '87. I will be better than Knight. Everybody was obviously, rightfully so, disappointed about Ray Knight uh, not coming back. Kevin McReynolds was the big offensive import. They knew they had to supplement Carter and Hernandez offensively and nobody would have thought it was hojo and whitey herzog accusing him with the cork bats that whole summer and you know he had some down years in between or not as good as 89 and 87 and 91 but 88 and 90 was still solid years played a multiple of uh multiple positions including the outfield uh very underrated and a big part of that you know post 86 team i don't think people realize how important his bat was to that group yeah, Hojo, I think, was chronically underestimated, uh, per- particularly after Ray Knight left. And listen, we all appreciated Ray Knight, and I wish uh, they could have figured out a way to keep him around, ease him out more gradually. He won the MVP of the World Series, but, you know, you had Hojo, and you had Dave Magadan also look at, looking for playing time, so it wasn't that crazy. But just to, to keep it focused on Hojo, uh, you know, when he came over, he got most of the playing time at third base. It was not a strict platoon uh, with Knight. And Knight had a miserable 1985. So Hojo actually became the people's choice in that way. Players become A or B. Yeah. I want A. Why are they always playing B? Yep. And then yep. that kind of reversed in the year ahead when Knight had his big comeback and Hojo just didn't get to play as much. But yeah, he really rounded into form once he had the opportunity. And and by the way, let's not discount his contributions to 1986. He may not have been an everyday starter, hit some huge home runs that year, gave Davey a lot of flexibility, the ability to play shortstop, especially when he had a fly ball pitcher in there. But really, 87 was was the revelatory year. And the numbers that you cited earlier you know, would follow kind of quietly. I, I think it's telling that the one time Howard Johnson got to start at third base for the National League, he was a retirement replacement because people were so used to voting Mike for Mike Schmidt. Yeah, they voted him sure. in even though he just retired. But, you know, the uh, I guess this was 89, so Tommy Lasorda 
was the manager. And he said, well, Hojo's my third baseman <laughs> in the All-Star game. And, and why wouldn't he be? You mentioned the outfield before. Listen, that to me is always one of those things that's, you know, I, I love, a, there's a phrase I love, a team man. Uh, you know, to, to me, Edgardo Alfonso was a team man because they kept schlepping him across the diamond. Hey, can you play second? Can you play third? And he never complained. Hojo was like that because Hojo was, you know, again, most of his time, he's a third baseman. Davey said, hey, listen, I need you to play shortstop. He said, that's okay. I know how to play shortstop. You know, later on, Bud Harrelson says, listen, we're short in the outfield. We don't have Daryl Strawberry anymore. Can you play right field? That's how he finishes up the year he leads the league in home runs and RBIs. Amazing. And then Jeff Torborg comes along and like, listen, we need to put, we don't have Kevin McReynolds anymore. We need to put uh, Vince Coleman in center field. Do us a favor or in left field because he's a terrible center fielder. Do us a favor, play center field. You've got speed. And he agreed. And, you know, I, I got the opportunity to speak to Hojo once, not, not that long, but specific to defense. So I've always been fascinated by the idea that the Mets are always trying to turn outfielders from third baseman and third baseman into outfielders. And Howard Johnson, like, Seemed to take a lot of pride in the fact that he could play center field. Uh, the, the fact that he was, in his mind, not a third baseman, but a shortstop. That's how he came up. You know, he, he mentioned to me, you know, he was Alan Trammell's backup. That meant something to him. So th- this is a guy who took a lot of pride in all facets of his game. In, in retrospect, as, as shocking as it was that suddenly a guy who was sitting on the bench one year is hitting 30 home runs and stealing 30 bases, in retrospect, it's not that crazy because the guy had so much talent and so much drive. And, you know, the, the years where he excelled the most were years that the Mets fell various versions of short. Uh, they wouldn't have been anywhere near a pen and race during those summers and into September twice if Howard Johnson isn't at the top of his game. So, you know, I, I appreciate guys who sort of transcend eras a little bit, who aren't just about... He was here in 1969. He was here in 1986. And we're just going to forget about everything else. This is a guy who was, again, a, an important cog to the team that dominated baseball. And then he becomes a star on the team that is still a prime contender and is still the reason you come out you know, right. to, to pay for those right. tickets in the, the early 90s when there isn't a whole lot else to cheer for at Shea Stadium. So, again, this is one of those things, you know, you can look at all four of these inductees yesterday and say, why weren't they in, you know, 15 years ago, <laughs> uh, 20 years ago? And, uh, hey, he's there now. They're all there now, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, Greg, I know you're up against this. One last thing before we let you go. What do you, who would you like to see next? Would you like to see a Doc and Daryl Day? I know that's starting to make some waves through the fan base. Sid Fernandez, I think, now that Leiter and Matlack is, are in the Hall of Fame, a, a guy to consider, another underrated guy. Uh, real quick. You got a couple of minutes. I know you got to run. Uh, what would you like to see next from the Mets Hall of Fame? Oh, well, I mean, Doc, Doc and Daryl, I guess, would be a matter of retiring their numbers because they've been in the Hall of Fame since 2010. And that took too long, by the way. Sure. Um, as far as the Hall of Fame, I mean, there, there's, still, there's still quite a backlog. Um, honestly, in my heart, the guy I would love to see honored, and I'm not 100% sure he could be there at this stage of his life, is Ron Hunt who would not be the guy necessarily in terms of statistics and championships or like that. But I think he's the one guy who personifies the early years and the first glint of hope. I mean, I, I'd written something last year calling for the, a little tongue in cheek, but not really the idea of the Casey Stengel vestibule. I called it the idea of finding a way to honor the guys 
who had nothing to do before 1969, who had nothing to do with 1969, because that's when you built the franchise. That's when you built up fans and nobody. He wasn't an original Met, but you know, Ron Hunt shows up in 1963. They're still playing in the polo grounds. He nearly wins rookie of the year. The guy who did it, is, I forget his name. Oh, yeah, it was Pete Rose. And he's the first guy to, to give you know, a young player who knew what he was doing it was such an, an unusual thing. You get to 64, you get to Shea Stadium. He's the starting second baseman in the National League All-Star game at Shea Stadium. Gets, a, I think, I want to say two hits. He might have just been one. But uh, you know, I guess I, I'm also drawn to this because you know, he showed up at City Field a couple of years ago, you know, having having some physical difficulties, but wanted to meet his fans. And Ron Hunt has fans who have been with him since 1963. And I'm sure, you know, I, I you've heard both Gary and Howie talk about his importance. So even though, I, again, I, I could very easily just say, hey, put David Wright in the Mets Hall of Fame. We know that's inevitable. Or a guy like Jesse Orozco, who, you know, one of the, great relief pitchers and has one of the signature moments in Mets history, you know, are, are names that, that occur to me and pro- probably another dozen others if, if I had time, but I would like, to, I would like Ron Hunt to, to enjoy the idea that the Mets recognized what he meant to the team. Greg, this is always fun. I'm glad we could do this yearly. Who knows what next year brings? Enjoy Who the knows? rest of your Sunday. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And uh, let's keep in touch. And I always appreciate your work. And uh, I miss seeing you at the ballpark. And let's catch up soon. All right, my friend? I hope so. Thank you very much, Mike. And that's Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. Always enjoy catching up with Greg. Let's take a quick break, wrap up. Really surprised about his choice for next induction into the Mets Hall of Fame. I'll talk about that. A little bit of a pitch clock controversy this week. I want to weigh in on that. Max Scherzer had some comments. We also saw a bunch of pitch clock violations this uh, weekend that might have been ticky-tack. So let's take a quick break, wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. You know, you, you're supposed to get eight warm-up pitches, and I had seven, and I asked for, can I get the eighth pitch? You know, can I do my normal routine warm-up? And he's telling me it's a clock, it's a clock. And, you know, that's what's so frustrating is that, look, I'm doing my normal routine. Why, why do we need to step through the game and have the umpires, you know, change, change routines when it's not my fault of what's going on here? You know, like, that, that's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm talking to Tripp, and he, you know, he's sitting there saying, like, it's not, I, I can't do anything about it because if I let you throw the pitch – then, you know, MLB gets mad at him. And so this goes back to, you know, why do we need a pitch clock for that situation? You know, if I throw one more pitch, what, I'm one second slower? Like, why can't the umpire have discretion in that situation to allow a pitcher to throw his eight normal warm-up pitches? Why do we have to be so anal about this to have the clock up everybody's face, shove in everybody's face and try to stop out every little single second that's going through the game? And so it's situations like that that really are frustrating for not only – you know, pitchers, players, even the umpires, and that's what Trip says. You know, like Trip, Trip's handcuffed. Why is Trip handcuffed to not not allow something normal, a normal routine, just a normal routine? You know, why can't Trip make that call? And so, you know, he was actually, you know, compliment. You know, he, he said, you know, thank you for speaking out for the umpires because the umpires want to have that discretion. They want to allow the game to be normal. But the umpires are frustrated as we are that the game's not normal. That we're just living and dying by the clock. And so, you know, that, that was our conversation. And I said, look, I'll, I'll speak for you that, the, you know, we're too far. Like I said, we're way too far, you know, thinking about the clock in every single situation instead of letting players have their normal routine. 
We're back. Final thoughts. You heard Max Scherzer and some of his thoughts on the pitch clock, and I do want to give you a couple of musings on the pitch clock and what we saw this weekend with some of the violations. I know John Schneider, manager of the Blue Jays, had some issues with how strict the crew this weekend was with the pitch clock. But first, just following up on what Greg Prince said, totally surprised about Ron Hunt. I mean, interesting thought about induction to the Mets Hall of Fame. That's a real hardcore Mets baseball historian. That's what. That's why I bring Greg on. That's what you're going to get, those kind of names about the Mets Hall of Fame. Now, I think the obvious number retirement slash Hall of Fame would be David Wright. Uh, I know that it's been over five years now since Wright retired, or this is five years now since he retired. He is not going to be elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. We know that. Be interesting for Wright. I think that they're trying to see when Wright is ready. Because his career ended in a way that I think, let's face it, there's some unfinished business maybe in Wright's mind. So when is he ready to say, hey, I'll accept that? That, my opinion, don't know, don't have any information. That plays into it. Uh, so we know about Wright. Um, and I think there's going to be some momentum towards retiring Doc and Daryl's number. We all know the off-the-field issues. Both of these guys have been punished. Daryl has done a lot of work across the country with his ministry. I mean, he's cleaned up his life. He's trying to do good work. Uh, I think he's a totally different person. I've had a chance to talk to him a couple of times in the last 10 or 15 years and uh, always been a gentleman. Same with Doc. Doc was on this show had a chance to talk to him. I know he's uh, had a little bit rougher road than Daryl coming back, but it seems like he's doing well, doing Mets community work from time to time around the ballpark. And let's hope he stays clean and sober and continues the challenges that come with sobriety and, you know, meeting them and exceeding them. And, you know, I, I don't think either one of those guys deserves to be punished for what they did off the field. They were big parts of the 80s Mets at one point, they were the best pitcher and the best, arguably, were on track to be the best pitcher and the best position player in franchise history. You could argue that Strawberry may still be. Doc, no, with DeGrom. And, and obviously, he never surpassed Seaver because of some of the things that happened with his career getting cut short. Some of it to drugs, also a big part of it due to injury. So take the obvious out there. You know, what's next for the Mets? And I think Sid Fernandez is a name we should look for. Because Sid, and I've talked about him, another underrated pitcher behind Darling, behind Gooden, behind Ojeda, behind Cone on those 80 staffs. But better than Cone, better than Darling statistically, every bit the pitcher for the Mets during his, his tenure that Al Leiter was during his, uh, Al was considered an ace, Sid was considered the fourth or maybe fifth starter, depending on how you looked at it, when Viola was in that rotation, didn't always get the one-loss record that he should have, but because of his high strikeout rate and his low contact and the kind of power pitcher that he was, Sid would have been a darling of the analytics crowd because he was the poster child where you don't... I mean, in 88, I think, he had a losing record and he had a, you know, a fantastic uh, peripherals. You know, I even go to... Like, you know, I'll bring a baseball reference right now real quick. I should have had it up while, uh, while we were on break. But, you know, here's a guy... That, you know, uh, in 1988, you know, went, uh, excuse me, not 88, 1990, he had a 109 ERA plus, but he was nine and 14, you know, on the year. So it was, you know, it was interesting. He didn't, he, Sid was the kind of guy that 
would strike out 16 batters, then give up a home run to Lonnie Smith and lose the game 2-1 to one or one nothing. There'd always be something that would happen. You know, he was home run prone, you know, threw a heavy fastball that if he got a hold of it would go out. You know, a lot of fly balls, not a lot of ground balls. But uh, to me, Sid would be the next guy to consider. You want to throw a name out there outside of the obvious. That's my vote for some consideration into the Mets Hall of Fame. Now, Max Scherz had a lot of issues with the pitch clock. You know, they don't, they, you know, the umpires become slaves to the pitch clock. You saw some questionable pitch clock violations called this weekend. Another one not called where Adam Adovino was in the process of going into his uh, delivery and the clock hit zero. We know the last data that we got given to us about three or four weeks ago is that the time of games is down across the league 30 minutes. That's significant. And I have no issues with the new rules. We've talked about this already. Nothing bothers me. The lack of, uh, you know, the pickoff restrictions don't bother me. The clock has kind of faded into the background. The shift ban has not, to me, changed a lot in the game. Actually, it's achieved what we, at least from the Mets' perspective, you saw that with Lindor, some of the athleticism. They have the kind of players where it benefits because guys like McNeil and Lindor are very good fielders. Um, you know, you've seen very little impact on that. I'm speaking from Mets' perspective, but around the league, the game doesn't look much different. It actually looks better. It's moving faster. A half hour is a big deal. Gets people out of the ballpark quicker. I know some complain that it maybe pushes their experience in the ballpark a little too quickly. You can't have it both ways. From a television standpoint, you're in under three hours. Game starts at 10 after 7. More than likely, you're done with the game by 9.30, quarter to 10 at night. That is... You know, maybe some kids, younger kids can't stay up, but that's not all that late where a kid, you know, in their teens, they're probably still up and able to watch TV at 9.30, 9.45, even on a school night. I don't know. I don't have kids, so kill me if you think that's a stupid comment, but I was up at those times when I was a kid at those ages, and that was in the 80s and 90s. Anyway, so I digress. What I will say is I agree with Max Scherzer, but this is where it gets tricky. When you start to give umpires judgment on the pitch clock, you start to go into the world of the NBA. I always like to bring back the NBA, or even the NFL, where there's judgment calls, pass interference in the NFL, fouls in the NBA. Do you call three seconds on that guy? Um, Do you give the extra step to LeBron James on the drive to the basket and call it travel? Palming violations, how Allen Iverson used to get away with that. I mean, all sorts of things that stars get away with that others don't. And I could see where if the pitch clock variability was given, maybe an extra half a second to a second. Because let's face it, what Scherzer's talking about in his commentary, what is it going to take a 30-minute savings and bring it down to 28 minutes? It's not changing. People aren't going to feel that difference. If it gets to the point where they make exceptions and 30 minutes goes down to 15, I mean, I've heard Scherzer talk about shutting the clock off if the pace is going good. That's too variable. That's too much judgment in there. You have to have some foundation of rules. And, you know, Eventually, the thought is, if you put this in for a few years, does it become the routine of the players? And then you don't have to really worry about it anymore. I mean, think ultimately human behavior will take over and games, which we had hoped would organically speed up, you know, would. I think the throws over to first and the step offs have as much to do with the pace of play than the time in the box. And I think that's where the study has to really go for baseball or is the savings the extra you know pushing guys in the batter's box quicker or is it with the throws over to first and the step offs which could become laborious especially late in game when relievers are trying to gather themselves and try to think and and 
take in all the environment in a big moment that they have to take in? That's a very interesting question, and I would bet it's a lot closer than you think. I think the pickoff situation may have as much, if not more, impact on the pace of play than the clock getting into the box and the pitch clock. Because, I mean, how many more seconds are guys going to need? It's the it's the step-offs that cause the delays, not necessarily you know eight to nine seconds you know, or anything like that. So, although I agree with Scherzer, I am not a fan of all of a sudden the, the umpires given that discretion. Although I agree with him, the situation he outlined on warm-up pitches, you probably want to go a little bit more there. But I know what the league's doing. They don't want to give that discretion because I know what the league's saying. This is going to be like the NBA. A Max Scherzer will get that treatment, and the 4A guy that's just come up today will not. And they'll be afraid to you know, go after a Juan Soto for an extra second, but they'll easily go after Luis Guillerme or, you know, some rookie. So I think the league has to stay strong to their rules and to the, into the clock running things. But I think part of the analysis at the end of the year has to be what really made the most impact. And if it's the disengagements on the mound, then maybe you give a little bit of leeway on the clock, even if you give them a little bit more time, because I don't think that time of game is going to change uh, dramatically if your study indicates that it's the disengagements that have, the lack thereof, that have sped up the game. So that's my final thought for the day on the pitch clock. I understand Max Scherzer's point. I did think they were ticky-tacky, the strikeouts on both sides that happened. I mean, it was like, okay, you're in the box, but you're looking down, but are you really ready? Well, you are ready. You're really not. But the pitcher wasn't ready to throw, really. It wasn't like he was going to throw that second. But I understand they have to keep things black and white. To me, I'd like a little bit of gray, and I think a variability of a second might help, you know, players, uh, you know, with their routine. And the real question is, have some players been impacted by the clock? I mean, you see guys like a Trey Turner. I don't know what he was last year, but he's having a down year. Could that be a big contract or not? Mark Cannon has been struggling a little bit with the clock. I think he's, you know, starting to come into form. You know, you don't know what that's doing to some of the other players, McNeil and things like that. So I don't know if the clock being in their head is causing some clutter on the mind that before there wasn't. So anyway, want to thank everybody for tuning in to this edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You could check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And, of course, I want to thank the good folks for the fan site of Podcasting Network and RisingApple.com for their patronage of the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.